we started this series last week, first series of the year, and uh, it's called The Pursuit. And it is deliberately placed at the beginning of the year to help jumpstart our year as we pursue God, but also to understand that God pursues us. From the very beginning of the Bible, right, the very beginning of mankind, as we read it in the Bible, we see God pursuing mankind. He did it with Adam and Eve. We talked about that a bit last week where he pursued Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, and walked with them in the cool of the day and had a relationship with them. It was different. It was different. And we see where he pursued the, the different people in the Bible as we look through Bible history from Noah to Abraham all the way up to Moses that we talked about last week. He pursued Moses and then the children of Israel. And he's pursuing us even here today. God is pursuing us and he's doing something. He's provoking us to pursue him. He's, he's, he's messing with us. He's, he's enticing us. I mentioned last week that he wants to play hide and go seek, but he's not hiding real good. He wants to be found. He, but he wants us to, 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 to lean in. He wants us. Well, the scripture says if we, if we will we'll pursue God, that he would pursue us, right? He, he wants us to do something, to step in in action. He's provoking us. And as we lean into God and pursue God, he, he makes it clear he doesn't want it just to be intellectually, to know about him, but for it to be experientially, to know him, to have a relationship with him. There's one thing to know about somebody another thing to know them and to have a relationship with them. And God's, God wants both. He does want us to intellectually understand him. There's, there's logic behind our relationship with God, and there's logic behind the kingdom of God and, and, and all the elements of God from, from, his, from sin to, to redemption. There's, there's logic there, and we need to understand that intellectually. But also, he wants us to experience him. And, and, and we do that in a variety of ways. We do that through the word of God. We do that through worship. We do that through prayer. We do that through crises. You know, um, faith usually is built in crises. We, we, we have faith. We know the just shall live by faith, right? The Bible tells us that our relationship with God, it begins with faith. It, it's built on faith and it ends with faith. And yet it's, it's built in crises. And if I said today, how many of you want to be closer to God and have more faith? Of course, everybody, yeah. So I said, okay, good. Okay, well, it's going to happen in crises. And everybody will be like, pull your hand down. No, I don't want crises. But it is true that crises does at least give us the opportunity to draw closer to God. Not that you can't draw closer to God in good times, good seasons, but crises does that. And I was, I was talking to many of you before church, and I, I tell you, just this week alone, I've come across the path of so many people who are in crises. You know, I prayed for some of you today, even in the hallways as we were passing, because you've got major life events happening. This week, we got a text from a, a dear friend, a uh, member of the church who uh, her and her husband were on a cruise, and her husband had a heart attack and died on the cruise. And here she is. She's stranded at sea, right? Almost like, you know, crises. What a crises. What? Can you imagine? I mean, and then some of you can because you're there, a, a, a lady in our church whose father um, is 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 in the hospital and he's essentially, you know, touch and go. And he's even saying, I'm tired. I don't want to go on. You know, crises, crises. But it's in those moments of crises where we feel God's presence the most or, or 
Lord, that we can pursue God the most and dig into God and cry out to God. We see Moses in the Bible where he, he had grown up in the palaces of Egypt and he ended up killing an Egyptian, defending his Hebrew brethren. And Pharaoh was mad, so Moses ran and he ran to the other side of the desert to Midian where he met a woman at a well and love story, right? He fell in love and got married and he ended up pastoring her father's sheep for 40 years in Midian. And one day as he was out there in the backside of the desert with the sheep up in the hill country grazing and God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And we see in the book of Exodus, the story unfolds and God speaks to Moses and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And the people of Israel had been in captivity for a long, long time. They had grown in number. It was probably two to three million Israelites living in Egypt and the Egyptian leadership felt threatened. And so they were like, let's, let's do something about this. And they were killing the firstborn children of the Israelites to keep them from multiplying. And they couldn't stop them. And they were threatened. And there was this, they put them in slavery and they had, they had abused them. And they, the children of Israel had cried out to God in their distress. And the Bible says that God heard their cry. He, he hears our cry. He heard their cry. And that's when he spoke to Moses and said, go and and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses did that. He obeyed God. And of course, the story is, is a huge story there in the book of Exodus. But he ended up telling Pharaoh. And Pharaoh eventually, after a lot of persuasion by God, let the people of uh, Israel go. And Moses led them out. Miracles happened. The Red Sea parted. They walked through on dry ground. They, they were fed by God miraculously. There was no food in the middle of the desert. But every morning they woke up and there was there was some food on the ground for them. And, and God sent quail. God provided water. He, he had Moses to, to strike a big rock and water poured out in the middle of the desert. And they had water, plenty of water for two to three million people. Lots of water, right? They had seen these miracles and they watched God. God literally led them in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He led them and His very presence was in their midst. And they, God led them to Mount Horeb, which is... Uh, out in the middle of the desert. It's the same mountain he had spoken to Moses from, from the burning bush. And he led them to this mountain, and, and Moses went up on the mountain and met with God. And God spoke to Moses, and he gave them, him the instructions to build his tabernacle. Now, that, that's what this sermon is about, right? This series. We we're talking about the tabernacle that God gave to Moses, that God gave to the children of Israel, and told them to build right out in the middle of the desert for this two to three million people. To be able to worship God and to hear His voice. This place for God to commune with His people. Again, from the very beginning, God has wanted to be with His people. He wants to be with you and I. He wants to be with us. He doesn't want to be distant. He doesn't want us to look at Him as a distant relationship. He wants us to understand that we can draw near to Him. And He will draw near to us. That He'll walk with us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is with us as believers every day. 
we forget that. We forget that, and we feel like we're all alone. We allow fear to control us and grip us and so many circumstances. But if we go back to the Bible and what Jesus tells us, he tells us, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be with you. You don't have to worry. Don't have to fear. So God has wanted to be with his people from the very beginning, and he still today is draw- he's, he's beckoning to us to come near. Come near. In Exodus chapter 25, the, the story of the children of Israel is really coming to a head. And Moses said, he's on the mountain with God. And in verse 8, God speaks to Moses about this, this tabernacle in the wilderness. And he says, and let them make me a sanctuary. So he's talking about the people. He said, you're going to go down and the people are going to make this sanctuary for me. That, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of its furniture, so shall or so you shall make it. I'm going to give you this exact measurement, these exact details of the description. So he's telling Moses, I'm going to give you the every every detail. It's kind of like if you've ever been around construction at all, it's the blueprint, the pattern for building this, this fancy tent. In the, in the middle of the desert, he told Moses, he said, I go and tell the people to bring contributions, and they did. They brought their gold earrings, and they, they brought their, their, their sheep offerings. They brought all kinds of stuff. And they used all of this contribution to, to then make the materials for the tabernacle. They hammered out the gold, the silver, the bronze, and they made all these things. All for the purpose of God's presence showing up and being among his people. He has always, I'm stressing this, I'm I'm belaboring this, he has always wanted to be with his people. God gave Moses a pattern to build a tabernacle. The word tabernacle is not a word we use, um, but it's basically a tent or a dwelling place. I, I would I would call it a sacred space. You, you, you would call this room a sacred space. You've heard me say this before if you've been around any length of time. This, this building in and of itself is not sacred. What's sacred about it is that we meet with God here. When we leave here, this is just a building, just, just a room. There's actually nothing holy about this building. But when we come together and the presence of God shows up, it's a sacred space. A sacred space is where God meets with his people. And that's what he told the children of Israel. To build him through Moses, he said, I want you to build this, this specific tent, this meeting place, tabernacle, and I'm going to meet with you. We see when we read the entire Bible, when we get to the New Testament, we see that the tabernacle is a sign, the tabernacle that God gave Moses for the children of Israel to build in the middle of the desert in Exodus chapter 28 is a sign of things to come. When we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is with us. The word, uh, the name given to Jesus by some of the prophets was Emmanuel. Prophesied and then, then given to Jesus. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus came and walked among us, right? And he is with us. So I'm making the link now because I want you to see it throughout the sermon that the tabernacle in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Some call it a type and shadow. It was a picture of what was to come. What was to come 
is Jesus. And Jesus did come and walked among us and is still with us here today. Everything about the tabernacle points to Jesus. From the pattern to the materials to the furniture, it all symbolizes Christ. As we study the tabernacle, we'll see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is built into every detail of the tabernacle. Let's, uh, let's walk through the tabernacle. So here we have a picture of the tabernacle on the screen. Just like God said to build it. And so you, I'm going to go reverse. You can see the tent. And the tent uh, was specific detail, every detail. It was the layers of the fabrics, the, the inside, when we're going to get to it over the next few weeks, had two rooms in it, a larger room and a smaller room. One was called the holy place. And one was called the holy of holies. And right, and that's where we see where God's presence was dwelt. Um, and then, then outside you see the courtyard with the, 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 the fencing around it. And there's just a couple of items in the middle. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want you to see in this picture, in this pattern, I, w- I want you to see how God provided for the children of Israel something that we know of as Jesus. We don't have to build a tabernacle. We don't have to put a fence up and use these instruments. And all the sacrifices that went on there, it's already been done, and we have it in our relationship with Jesus. So God was drawing the children of Israel closer. Okay, so here we have this picture. So you might notice around the outside, and this is, this is a depiction, of course, but there's tents where there was two to three million people living around this tabernacle out in the middle of the desert. And they were required to bring sacrifices. And there was only one way to get in to the courtyard, to the outer court of this, of this tabernacle. And that was through the gate. So the gate was on the, the east end. I don't know if you can see it from there, but there's a little gate right there. And it's a, it's a fabric, a tapestry. The gate was um, made of beautiful tapestry, red, blue, and purple. It was to symbolize royalty. And it represents our access to God. It represents our access to God. The children of Israel, there was only one way in to this. And interestingly, the courtyard around the tent, the outer court, it was inclusive in that everybody could get in. Everybody from the children of Israel could get in. But it was also exclusive. There was only one way in. You couldn't go in any other way. Jesus tells us that He is the gate. He he is the only way to access the presence of God. I think it's important that we understand that because so often, especially especially now, we have access to all the information, right? We have the internet and we have social media, but, but over and over again, we're told that there are a variety of ways to get to God. Oh, it's the same God, but just a lot of different ways. But that contradicts what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. And he says, I'm the gate. I'm the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the gate on the outer court represents Jesus. Once you walk through the gate, it would open up into the courtyard and you would see the first piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And that was this large fire pit. Come on, how many of you got a fire pit at home? You know, have a fire pit. Usually they're smaller, but 
This would have been a very large fire pit. It was the first thing you see when you walked in the gate. And it was constantly burning. And the priests who were designated by God specifically would have been attending to the fire, would have been attending to the sacrifices that were made. So the first thing we see when we walk into the presence of God, walk into the courtyard of God, we're, we're walking towards God. We're, we're experiencing God. We walk through the gate, and the first thing we see is this brazen altar, this bronze altar. It was made of wood, and they put bronze overlaid to where all you see was this glistening bronze brass. And it was smoking. You would have been standing there looking at it, and you would have heard the bleeding of sheep, and there would have been priests over here, most likely some tables, and you would bring your sacrifice and say, okay, I'm here to offer this bull or this lamb or maybe this dove. I'm here to offer it as a sacrifice to God on this brazen altar to pay for my sins. And, and, and maybe, maybe it, would have been, it, it would have been Ernie walking through the gate there, and he was offering for his whole family. And he said, I've got this sheep and this bird or this cow, and I'm going to offer this for the sins of my family, for the Bond family. And, and the priest would, would have him to lay his hand on that animal and confess his sins. And then that priest would cut that animal's throat and skin the animal. And he would, as God's details, details he would sacrifice parts of the animal on that brazen altar. And the, the, the smoke, I, I have to believe it would smell like the green egg was fired up. You don't know? Or in another way of saying it, uh, like the Traeger was fired up. I, I don't know if that's some of y'all identify. No, it would, it would have smelled like burnt flesh. It would have smelled like meat on the grill. Because that's exactly what it was. But that meat represented the death of that animal, the death of that animal and the aroma that was in the air was said to be a pleasing aroma to God because it satisfied the debt of sin. It, it was a substitute for our sins, for the people's sins. Ernie, if you were to lay your hands on that cow and said, I'm confessing my sins, that cow went on the altar so you didn't have to. So you didn't have to pay the price for your sin and satisfy the very wrath of God. So the brazen altar was a designated place for God's people to offer sacrifices for their sins. We see later in, in the Old Testament, God laying out through Moses to the children of Israel this, this system for sacrifice and it's very elaborate, and, and if you're reading in, like, say, the one-year Bible right now, you're going to be getting into it here over the course of January and February, the book of Deuteronomy and the laws, the different ceremonial laws and sacrificial laws and Leviticus. And you see, it's very complicated. Boy, the, the things they had to do to satisfy the wrath of God for their lives. And all of these sacrifices were having to be made to atone for their sins. Now, we see in the Bible where Adam and Eve were made perfect, whole, no sin in their life, and then they disobeyed God and they ate from the tree that God forbade them to eat from. And when they did, sin entered mankind. And immediately their debt was death. 
to satisfy the wrath of God. God is holy and pure. He's whole. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. It's, it's literally, I've used this illustration before, but imagine with me if I took a Coke right out of the refrigerator and I opened this cold can of Coke, fizz, and I poured it over a glass of ice and you were thirsty. <laughs> you might be thirsty now. I poured it over a glass of ice and the bubbles and the sizzles and the foam and you're, you can just almost like taste it already, you know. And I said, would you like a cold glass of Coke? And you're like, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, okay. And then I spit in it and I handed it to you. Exactly. That's how God feels, probably 10 times worse, but about sin. Sin pollutes purity. It pollutes the sanctity of God, the holiness of God. And, and, and exactly what happened in your, your head just now and came out your mouth, that's, that's what God says. And so his wrath is against that. He's like, no, I'm against pollution, that type. Sin, I'm against sin. And so his wrath, you know, God is love. But the only thing that, the only way to have pure love is to also have wrath. It's the balance. God is both. So he can love us unconditionally, but he hates sin. And his wrath is against sin. And when Adam and Eve, who were walking in God's love, sinned against God, it polluted them, spit in the coke. And now they're standing in the face of God's wrath. God had to go slay an animal and cover them with skins to atone for his wrath, to atone, to pay the debt, to reconcile. And the same thing with the children of Israel. They were standing before this brazen altar with their sheep or their cow or carrying their bird or whatever sacrifice they had brought that day. They laid their hand on it and confessed their sins and they burnt that live animal. They, they killed the live animal. He's dead now. They burned it on the altar and the aroma went up and it said, hey God, my sins have been atoned for. Whew. I'm no longer a victim of God's wrath. I'm no longer, I'm no longer in the crosshairs of God's wrath for my sins until they went and sinned again and then they had to bring another animal, right? And they did this often. The priests would do it for the whole children of Israel once a year, but it was called atonement and it paid the debt. It justified God's people and it satisfied His wrath against their sins. So when we walk through the gate, we see the brazen altar. This brazen altar represents God's atonement through Jesus' death on the cross for you and I. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus allowed himself to be killed. To be that sacrificial lamb. To lay on that brazen altar, as it were. His was upright. And to die for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be atoned for, that we could be made right with God. Now, let me, let, me, let me get your attention for a moment here, because when we are in our sin, we're away from God, we're in our sin, we're far from God, we're, we're due the wrath of God in our sin, and God begins to draw us and saying, I love you, I died for you on the cross, and Jesus begins to draw us, and we receive this free gift of salvation, we didn't have to, Ernie, we didn't have to bring the cow and the sheep and all that to the, to the priest to, to slaughter, to put on the, on the brazen altar. Jesus has done that for us. And he's saying, I did it for you. And when we see that and we say, 
yes to Jesus, immediately we are justified before God. Immediately when we say yes and we receive God's free gift of salvation, we're made right in God's eyes. Now he sees us through the sacrifice of Christ, through the blood that was spilt on Calvary. He sees us. We're right before God and we have access to God. When the children of Israel would come, you can imagine they would come and they would bring their, uh, I was picking on Ernie today, but they'd bring their sheep or their bull or their, or their bird and they would, the priests would cut the neck. They'd pray and give their sins. And say, I've confessed my sins. They'd cut the neck of the bull and they'd slice it up. Man, I bet they were fast too. They did a lot of them, hundreds a day. And they took this piece of meat and they laid it on the altar. As soon as, soon as Ernie, you smelled that smell, you're like, oh my gosh, relief. Relief. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. And when you, when you re- receive the free gift of God's grace and the, the love of Jesus to die on the cross for you, when you get that, when you realize that your sin kept you from God and now what Jesus still allows you access to God and you smell that sweet aroma, it's like, yes, I'm saved. I can now come into the presence of God without shame and guilt for what I've done. Jesus' sacrifice was a sweet aroma to God that reminds him that we are no longer under his wrath. We're his children. We have access. Our response to that, of course, is described in the Bible, and I'm not going to throw it on the screen, but Romans 12 tells us that our response to what Jesus did for us should be that we present our, our lives as a living sacrifice. Jesus, because of what you did on the cross for me, I, I'm, I'm going to die to self. I'm going to follow you. I want to grow. I want to be, be close to you. I want to draw near to you. I want, I want to know you. I want to know you, and I want to experience you. Our response, when we, when we understand, when we know that God has breathed in the, the perpetuation for our sins, the the atonement for our sins. When God has breathed that in and he's looking at us now and saying, I see you. Ernie Bond, you're my son. My wrath is no longer attacking you or after you or pursuing you. Our response to that should be, okay, God, you did that for me. My life is yours. I'm all yours. And sometimes you hear people say things like, uh, salvation doesn't cost us anything. But at the same time, it costs us everything. It doesn't cost us anything to get because Jesus already paid the price. But yet once we receive it, it God's, he's looking for our lives. He's saying, okay, you, you belong to me now. Bought with the blood of Jesus, amen? Christian, Christianity is considered a lifestyle of sacrifice. So once Ernie is an Israelite, walked past the brazen altar, sacrifice was made. The next thing that you would see on the other side of that, you can kind of see it behind there, is the the bronze laver. So it was also made out of bronze. It was beaten out of one single piece. So it was a, a big piece of bronze. I'm sure it was quite heavy. The bronze laver was, it was actually accessed by the priests. I would, would say and point out that the Bible calls us a holy priesthood. Once we're born again, we're a part of that now. We're part of the priesthood. We have access to God in that way. But it was for them to wash their hands and feet. In Exodus 30, 
verse 20, it says, when they go into the tent of meeting, so when they're headed in to meet with God and to serve God, when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, which we just walked through, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Just a little punctuation mark there. So that they may not die. Don't go into the presence of God with dirty hands and dirty feet. What does that mean? So they made their atonement, which represents Jesus on the cross. They gave their sacrifice. They're justified by God. But then they go to this labor of water and they wash. And you can imagine all day long washing going on. After the priest would sacrifice the animal, they would go and they would wash. And they would wash. They stay cleansed. It was a perpetual cleansing. A perpetual cleansing. Imagine being the guy who had to keep the water pot full. Staying busy. This bronze labor represents God's cleansing and purifying work in our lives through Jesus. So I gave you this illustration earlier, but when you were far from God in your sin under the wrath of God, God began to draw. He began to draw you. You heard the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross and he was the sacrifice so you don't have to bring a lamb, a sheep, a bull. You don't have to, you don't have to pay for your own price. You can receive the forgiveness of salvation. You said yes to Jesus and you were justified in that very moment. What took place was your condition, your sin nature that you got all the way back from Adam was dealt with called justification. It was dealt with. So your condition was now changed. You're no longer under the curse of sin. However, as you well know, your conduct still needs some work. My condition is changed at the brazen altar because of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm no longer a sinner I'm a saint. I have access to God. I can walk into his presence. The Bible tells us to come into the courts of God with joy in our hearts. We have access to God. However, we know. I mean, look to the person on your left and the person on your right. You know, they're sinners. <laughs> they're still acting up, right? Notice we're looking, but it's really us. So my, my condition was dealt with, but my conduct still needs some work. The Bible tells us that when we receive salvation from God by faith, that we are saved. Well, if you're saved, just say it. I'm, I'm saved. I'm saved. But the Bible also says that we walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, attach that to the Exodus scripture we just read. As a matter of fact, Liv, put it back up. Back up one. Yes. Next screen so that they may not die. <laughs> we walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, this is important. This is not something to laugh at. This is not something like, hey, it's optional, you can do it. No, sanctification, purification, the water, the cleansing is, is important to our walk with God. I'm right with God, I'm saved. But I'm also walking out my salvation with fear and trembling. I've been to the brazen altar. I receive what Jesus did on the cross, but I'm at the, I'm at the brazen labor now, the bronze water labor, and I'm washing because I don't want to die. 
we know this, that sin leads to death. And I don't want to die. And I'm not talking about natural death. I'm talking about spiritual. So I'm going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to walk out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to hear the Holy Spirit's conviction. I'm going to repent of my sins. As a matter of fact, you could look at that, that big water pot there and say it was a place of repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. How many times? As many as it takes. Repentance and restoration. What does this have to do with salvation? It has nothing to do with salvation other than it's an outward display of what God did in my life back there. At the brazen altar, my sins were dealt with, my condition. But my conduct is being dealt with every day. Every day. Every single one of us commits sin. We deviate from God's best. It's not the big things. It's everything. We go back to that labor and we wash up. Father, I did it during worship today. I just took time. I said, Father, please forgive me my sins. I'm sorry for not doing things the right way. God, but I know your Holy Spirit will help me do it the right way. I felt like, God, I was at the labor. I was washing up, getting, getting my feet and my hands clean, walking out that salvation. The Holy Spirit is here today building His church, building God's church. The Holy Spirit is here in this sacred space today, but He's also with you. Jesus said to His disciples, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be with you. As a matter of fact, he's going to be in you. And he's going to teach you everything that I've taught you. Everything that you need to know about God, he's going to show you and reveal to you. He's going to help you. As a matter of fact, he calls him the helper. It's this bronze labor, this washing place. Every one of us have that in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's guiding us and helping us and it's why you feel crummy when you've done something that you know wasn't God's best, wasn't right in God's eyes. It might have felt good for the moment. It might have been pleasurable. It might have been something that you're like, ah, I did it. Ah, you know, I don't feel so good about it. And that's the Holy Spirit convicting us. As you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit takes the truths in the Bible and he begins to point things out in our lives. And like, okay, I want you to work on this how you treat your spouse, how you've been treating her, how you've been treating him. It doesn't reconcile with the way God designed it. It's, it's not, it's, it's like, y'all heard me say this before. It's like taking a, a crescent wrench and using it as a hammer. It might work for a little bit, but you know, it wasn't designed for that. And eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess something up, either the nail you're nailing or the wrench you're are you going to be like me and you're going to have blood running down your hand because you're using the wrong tool for the wrong job and too often in life, we don't know what we're doing. We're winging it, man. And we screw up when we hurt people. We steal from them. We say things bad about them. We gossip. We, 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 we outburst of anger against our loved ones and, 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 and we, we hurt people. Holy Spirit takes the truths of God's word and convicts us and he, he washes us up. He's like, I don't, don't do that no more, man. And you probably will. 
come back to the labor, because you probably will do what you did again. But it's part of walking out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just, just know this, and I'll close. It's 11. We're going to sing two more songs, by the way. Don't make the mistake. This is so huge. Don't make the mistake of getting the laver and the brazen altar mixed up. Don't, don't, get, don't get into this thing of thinking that you have to keep going to the brazen altar like, the, like Ernie keeps doing. Why do you keep doing it, Ernie? Thanks. Uh, the children of Israel had to go back and back and back and back. You don't have to keep putting Jesus back on the cross. It's finished. When you say yes to his free gift of salvation, you are justified, made right before God. You don't have to fear, oh, did I lose my salvation last night up at Toots? But you do have to go to the labor after Toots. I won't say that. All those that were Toots said amen. I wasn't, by the way. Don't get them confused. And this is what people do all the time. They think they have to go put Jesus back on the cross. Go back. That's a one-time condition dealing thing. God reconciles our condition. We're right with God. What others do is they think that sanctification is a one-time process. I only got to wash once. And I'm good. And, and, and I will tell you, moms, you're probably guilty more than anybody of doing this with your children. They go into the five to eight room here and they hear the gospel and it touches their little hearts and they pray a prayer and they accept Jesus into their lives as their Lord and Savior, right? And they get in the car after church and they're riding home and they're like, I got saved today. And you get excited, mamas, you know that. Yo, my baby got saved today. She's seven years old. She got saved today. Woo, you know. And the next day, she does something to her brother, like pokes him in the eye with a pencil. And, and you look at her and you say, I thought you were saved. You see how we got it backwards there? She may very well have been saved, and today she's at the laver. She's going to sin again and probably poke his other eye out. That's what we do in this cycle or process of sanctification. We walk out our salvation. We walk it out. It takes time. It's a process. I would say, my opinion, it's a lifelong process until we find ourselves standing before God and being glorified by God. Then it's over. Cross the finish line. Don't get these two pieces of furniture backwards. Your condition is dealt with at the brazen altar. Jesus on the cross. My sins atone for. I'm made right before God. I'm saved. And now I'm going to walk out that salvation at the bronze laver. Keep washing. Repentance, restoration. Repentance, restoration. It's not a license to sin. But I will tell you this, where sin abounds, grace abounds. God knows. He made us. He understands. And that's why He gave us the Holy Spirit. To convict us, to bring us back to the reference. Bring us back to, to the cross. Bring us back to what happened to us when we were saved. To cleanse us, to wash us. In the next two weeks, we're going to go inside the tent. 
We're going to see what's in there. And I believe you're going to see Jesus and the gospel throughout. I believe it's going to impact the way you see God. I believe it's going to impact the way you see the Bible. Today, what we want to do is, is we've got a few minutes left. As we want to worship, I'm going to get the team to come on back up. And for some of you, you need to come through the gate. Jesus is the only way. You need to come through that, that royal curtain. The priest is there to pull it back. That's what these Levites are going to do, the worship team. And you need to come to Jesus. You need to say yes to the free gift of salvation. Some of you need to come to the, the brazen altar to look to Jesus and say, God, you died for me. You died for me, for my sins, to pay a debt that I couldn't pay. And today I say yes. And then for some of you, you you've done that, and you, you need to return to that bronze laver and get washed up. Today, as we worship, I believe there's a place for all three of those things to take place. Um, I invite you to do that. If you're here today and you're really, really struggling, as I said in the beginning, this is a moment where your faith can really grow. Cry out to God today. Don't worry about what the people around you are thinking. Just press into God. Go after God. Father, we're coming after you. Our appetites are growing for you. God, we want to be in your presence. We want to feel your presence. We want to feel your affirmation. Father, we want to know you. We want to know you. God, we're hurting. We're struggling. And we need you. Today, we've heard how to access you. We've heard what it looks like to access you and maintain that access, continually coming back and repenting, being restored. We've heard the picture and the pattern you've given us in the Old Testament. We've heard what Jesus did for us in the New Testament. And here we are today in your presence. And we draw near draw near we know that you'll meet us here we welcome you Holy Spirit